Well, this is kind of a big week in the Smith household. Uh, Nish and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary this week. I know. I know. I'm pretty sure that uh, anyone who has ever known us has recognized that I am definitely the lucky one in this relationship. Um, it is not often, however, that you are reminded of this in song in front of a big crowd of people. Let me give you a story. Our first year here when I was the youth minister, we went to summer camp at FDC. Um, and at camp that year, there was a recruiter from one of the Christian colleges, and he had grown up in the valley where Nisha and I had grown up. And so consequently, he had gone to summer camp with Nisha and apparently had a giant crush on her. Uh, his last name was Turner. So we had a talent and variety show every night. So one night he came up on stage with his guitar and um, he said that he had a really special song that he wanted to sing. But he wanted to introduce his song first. So he pointed to Nisha and said, this is Nisha Smith. She used to be Nisha Foster. She should be Nisha Turner. Uh-huh. <clears throat> this got my attention, as one would imagine. Um, he proceeded to say that Nisha had made the biggest mistake of her life by not being with him, and then proceeded to play Cry Me a River by Justin Timberlake. It took me a second to gather my wits, and at that point when said wits were gathered, I gathered a couple of friends around me we walked up on stage and carried him off <clears throat> as he shouted out his undying love for my wife. Now, I don't know what words come to mind when you hear this story, but there is one that still echoes through my soul, and that word is yikes. <laughs> I think Nisha was thinking more of the words restraining order, but you know, that, that, comes, that comes later. It was not ever clear if he was being serious or if he meant to be funny, uh, but to me and everyone else on the leadership team, it was not funny. Um, but it was a funny reminder of how we don't always get what we want in life. And some of those losses are hard ones to take. Now, this is especially true when it comes to our spiritual life or our relationship with God. It's hard because, you see, we, we want things from God. We want protection. We want success health, a good life. And as those who call themselves the children of God, we believe in a lot of ways that we should have a good life here on earth, that God should give that to us. And sometimes it can be really frustrating when you feel like you are doing what God wants you to do in any part of your life, and you don't get the results that you should get, or that you think you should get. So for those times, we, we don't always know how to deal with those things. And sometimes you hold on to that frustration until it comes out in song at summer camp. <laughs> but for a moment, I want us to wrap our minds around something important as we get started this morning and continue to go through the book of Acts. So we're going to look at a passage that helps us to do that. So from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, it's a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a powerful passage, church, and it's one that we know well. But what are the parts of this passage that we know well? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? It is God who justifies We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. These are the parts that we know from these verses. And those are the parts that we should know because those parts are really important parts. However, those parts are not the entire message of these verses. In fact... The message, if you just take those pieces out, they don't give you the real story of what Paul is trying to say. First of all, what is this victory predicated on? He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all. So yes, we had victory, but that victory came with what? A cost. A great cost that Jesus had to die so that God could be for us and none could stand against us. I want to point out two other things from this passage. From verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, here's what I want you to understand about this particular section. He does not say that those things will not happen. He does not say that this victory that you have means that you will not experience trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. What he says is that when you experience those things, they will not separate you from the love of Christ. In fact, if you, if you wonder about the meaning, look at verse 36. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. I don't know how you put a positive spin on that one. So what is the message that Paul is trying to give us in these passages? That we have thought to ourselves, they give us victory, so why isn't Why aren't I getting victory over everything? Here is the truth of this passage. 
that through Jesus, we will never be separated from the love of God, ever. And no matter what happens to us here on earth, our salvation can never be taken away from us by any enemy. No matter what they do or how they do it, your salvation through Jesus Christ is firm. To put it a slightly different way, no matter how much you lose here on earth, God has secured your forever. So we learn a couple of things from this passage that help us in, our, in the story from Acts we're going to look at today. Number one, God's goals may be different than our goals. His goal is that everyone be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that the gospel must go out. Therefore, I think it's safe to say that God doesn't always care about who wins baseball games or whether someone wins the lottery. You know, God has bigger concerns than that. His goals are different than ours. Number two, and this is maybe the more important one, God's definition of success may be different than our definition of success. We could sub the term victory in there as well. He has already won the war for eternity, and while he loves us and cares for us, he does not view the suffering we face as the worst thing in the world because he knows that this world is messed up, and one day we're going to get out of this dump and be with him forever. And that knowledge puts everything in this world into perspective. We also learn that God does not stop all of the evil or the evil people or the bad in the world. And this has way more to do with free will and the power of Satan in the world than it does God's desire or ability to overcome the bad around us. So if we are going to be a part of God's kingdom, we have to begin to see things from God's view, to view, to look for success the way that God looks for success, to cling to the victory that God promise, promises instead of looking for a victory that we want to define. He wants the gospel to go out. He wants all the world to be saved. He has the end view in mind. So let's look at Acts chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to start in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. All right, so something interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this, but as we've looked through this story so far, there has been one person that has lost their life, for the sake of the gospel, and that was Stephen, who was killed because of his belief in Jesus. But the apostles themselves, by and large, have been able to escape very much persecution. This drastically changed when King Herod Agrippa assumed role over Judea. So who was he? Aaron Fogerson's not here this morning. He would have loved this part. 
<clears throat> Agrippa was the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who you hear about in the birth of Jesus. Um, his father, Aristobulus, had been executed in 7 BC by his grandfather, Herod the Great, for fear that he might usurp his throne. So after his father's death, while he was still a child, Agrippa was sent to Rome with his mother, where he was raised and educated along with the children of the Roman aristocracy. And these childhood friendships really kind of paid off for him in later in life and led to his ruling over a, Je a Jewish kingdom nearly the extent of that of his grandfather. So in AD 37, right around the time of Jesus' death and a couple years after that, uh, the emperor Caligula, we, we, we're really missing out on some great names here for our children. Justin, Megan, Caligula, we can call him Cal for short. In AD 37, the emperor Caligula gave Agrippa the title of king and made him ruler over the territories formerly ruled by his uncle Philip. Can you bring up the next slide there, Jed? There we go. So this gives you a, a, a sense of how his kingdom grew during the time. Uh, where was I? Yes, ruler of the territories formerly ruled by his uncle Philip, lands in the Transjordan and the ten cities north of Galilee. In AD 39, Caligula extended Agrippa's rule by giving him Galilee and Perea, the territory of his uncle Antipas, who had been sent into exile. And finally, once Caligula was out and Claudius became emperor, he was also friends with Agrippa, and Claudius in AD 41 gave him rule of Judea and Samaria, which had been under Roman procurators for 35 years. And at that point, he became king of the Jews, now ruling over all Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Transjordan, and the, and the Decapolis. So basically, all of this. <laughs> he was given all of this area to rule and to watch over and to do as he wished while still being under Roman rule. So he was a pretty powerful dude. But even though he was powerful, uh, he was not a very secure man. And much of his good fortune was due to his friendships with, with Caligula, and Caligula had not been popular in Rome, and so Agrippa couldn't always count on Rome to back him up. It became all the more important for him to win the loyalty of his Jewish subjects then in order for him to at least have uh, a, like a firm footing at home. So when he was around the Jewish people, he... He sort of proclaimed his Jewishness, but really he was raised in Rome and he, he didn't live as a Jew in most other ways. Uh, it's said that outside of Palestine that Herod Agrippa demonstrated his Roman roots and sympathies. He minted coins. Uh, this is an example of what one of the coins would have looked like uh, with his image on it. Um, he constructed an amphitheater in Beirut and sponsored gladi gladiator games. Um, so I want you to keep this coin thing in mind about Agrippa, because I, this, this comes to play for us a little bit later in the story. So he wants, he's been given all this power by Rome. He's not sure how long the emperors are going to favor him in Rome. He wants to make the Jews like him, and he comes up with this great idea for how to help the Jewish people like him. I will start to persecute Christians. So he began by arresting some and having James killed by the sword. This James uh, was the brother of John and thus uh, was one of the sons of Zebedee that you read about in the Gospels. If Herod executed James in the Romans' fashion, that means that he cut his head off. 
that wasn't allowed within Jewish custom, uh, which then, if he was killed under Jewish custom, he just would have been stabbed with a sword until he was dead. So Agrippa does this, and he sees that the Jewish people are really appreciative of the fact that he just had someone killed. And he thinks, well, shoot, I'll kill some more folks. So he goes out and gets Peter. And this was a power move for Agrippa because Peter uh, was really important to the early movement just as James was. But he didn't really think it through, so he arrested Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which meant that he couldn't kill Peter right away. He had to wait until the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over because he would have uh, risked offending and, uh, and desecrating the holiday if he went ahead and killed Peter. So Peter was placed under heavy security, being guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. What this means, this was the usual Roman practice. They would change guards every three hours throughout the 12 night hours to assure maximum alertness. He was handcuffed to two. So he had a guard that he was chained to on either side, and then there would have been one at the, at the entrance to the cell and then another one at the gate that led to the cells. So he had four people guarding him all the time. He was locked up tight with the most protection that, that he could be given. So let's pick it up in chapter 6, or verse 6, I mean. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Okay, so Luke tells this story in a very particular way to get one solid point across to us. Peter was a great apostle, yes? A man of God, the spokesperson for God really within the Jewish community. How much did he have to do with being delivered from jail? Zero. This was obviously not Peter's escape. He doesn't have a, po a poster of Rita Hayworth and a small pick, you know, to go through the tunnel. He, he doesn't have any of that stuff. In fact, he's barely conscious through the whole thing. I mean, the angel has to kick him in the side to wake him up. He doesn't come to his senses until he is already out of jail and around the corner. So God is 100% the one who is making this escape happen. This is not unlike when Peter was on the rooftop and the sheet fell from heaven, and he was already a player in the story that God was telling. Uh, Peter was confused then, and when the servants of Cornelius showed up at his door, he went along with it, but he didn't have any idea what was going on. We see the same thing here. Peter has no idea what's going on. 
God is the one who is doing this. It's his story, and he is going to deliver Peter from the hands of Herod. Now, I want to ask a question which maybe you haven't considered as we buzz through all of this. Why did God save Peter and not James? It's an unanswerable question, by the way. But I think it's one that is relevant to us. Getting back to kind of where we started this morning. When does God provide or why does God provide success for some and not for others? Why does God deliver some and not deliver others? And when we ask ourselves those questions, the answers that we come up with are just ugly and not very satisfying. Well, they must have prayed harder or they must have had more faith. Or, the worst one of all, God must just love them more. So did God love Peter more than James? No, there's no evidence of that anywhere. Was Peter better than James? Could James not help get the gospel out like Peter did? Again, no evidence of these things. So while I understand why we might wonder these things, this kind of question reflects the value we put on the idea of things being fair, as well as a sense of how God should work on behalf of those who are his children. But when we do that, we're not taking a look at the whole story, because guess what happens to Peter later? He gets killed. He loses his life for the sake of Christ. So what do we know? We know that God delivered Peter so that he could continue his work in spreading the gospel. Let's pick it back up in verse 12. When this had dawned on him, on Peter, that he was now out of jail for real and not just dreaming, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. Remember, he just broke out of jail. (laughs) So getting inside is fairly important. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Okay, so Peter sleepwalks out of jail wakes up, realizes, I'm free, and goes to the place where he knows his followers are doing what? Praying for what? His deliverance. He knocks, Rhoda comes, it's Peter, she runs away. She tells them, they all say, "Uh, you're crazy, it must be his angel. Which that response reflects the Jewish belief that each person has a guardian angel as his or her spiritual counterpart, but you would only see that angel if that person died. So they're basically saying, well, you've, you've seen a ghost. So finally, she gets them to go to the door, 
and they find that it's him, and what do they experience? What emotion do they experience when they, when they see Peter outside? They are surprised. Why are they surprised? Because he was in jail, right? James had already died under the same scenario. They were expecting Peter to die, but they were sitting in this room praying for his deliverance. That's, so were they praying and not really expecting he would be released? God did something unexpected here. And maybe that helps us understand the whole James Peter thing even more. You know, that what God did was big on the part of Peter, but everyone was amazed because you just don't get out of this situation where the powerful king has locked you up and is going to kill you and has you guarded by four soldiers, two of whom you are chained to. And then the soldiers wake up in the morning. They're still wearing the chains, but the dude in the middle is gone. And per Roman custom, they were put to death because they had to receive the punishment that the prisoner was going to receive. So God had done this great thing, but the story isn't over. It has one more strange turn to it. <clears throat> Picking it up in verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to his people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Okay, so Herod, who had decided to persecute uh, the people of God, who had James killed, who arrested Peter, he gets to this point and he is uh, being worshipped and adored by the people. And what does he fail to do? He fails to say, I am not God. God is God, and I am just a king. And the moment he fails to do that, he is struck by worms, and he dies. And so we see something play out here that we've seen a couple of times in Acts, and that is that there is both mercy and judgment with the Lord. The Spirit blessed the faithful Christians with miraculous works and great growth, and that same Spirit uh, brought judgment to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied before God. The Lord's angel delivered Peter from mortal danger and struck Agrippa dead for all of his arrogance. And that's why I asked you to remember that coin. You know where that practice came from, right? It came from Rome, of putting the image of Caesar, who was considered to be God, on a coin. And so Agrippa followed in their footsteps putting his image on these things, taking the place of God. And God showed Herod who was God and who was not. And I love just the last 
tag notes there. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So what is this story about? What is it all about? Well, you know what? It's actually about that last line. What does God want? The word of God to go out and to flourish. Because it's flourishing means what? That people are hearing the gospel and their lives are being changed. And that no one, not even King Herod Agrippa himself, will stop it. We need to understand these stories within the mission of the book of Acts. Because Acts describes why, how, and through whom the gospel went out to the world. And we have to remember that the people that would have read this book for the first time were people that were most likely going through persecution, and they knew the truth of the world. Here's what they knew. That God doesn't fix everything for us. That believing in Jesus sometimes got you in more trouble than you were in before you believed in Jesus. And that speaking the truth to the world was going to put you at opposition with the world, even to the point where people might want to kill you. And so this story doesn't say, guys, everything's going to be all right. No one's going to suffer. No one's going to die. That's not how this is because they already know that's not how it is. So what does the story tell them? It tells them that the world is standing in opposition to the kingdom of God. And sometimes, people are going to suffer and die because of that. But Herod is not more powerful than God. Rome is not more powerful than God. Even though you might experience some of these losses, God is still in control, and God can still deliver. Even from the king, even from someone chained to Roman guards, he can march that person out without anyone knowing what has happened or being able to stop him. And he can strike down the king that stands in his way so that the word of God will go out. Therefore, you who are suffering and being persecuted know that the word of God is going to go out and that nothing will ever stop it. It will go out and it will flourish and people will hear and their lives will be changed and therefore take the gospel into the world even though it's difficult and it's hard, even though you may suffer for you are helping God complete his mission here on earth. That all may hear. That all may know. God wants the gospel to go into the world. And those that take the gospel are going to face difficulty, but ultimately God overcomes. Ultimately, God overcomes. And sometimes that takes place in this world, but following Jesus, you see, is all about the world to come. And in the world to come, Christ has already done all that needs to be done through Jesus Christ. Amen? For though we might suffer in the present, the eternity that God has for us takes us beyond this place. 
It takes us beyond this place to where we get to live forever with him. Amen.